Welcome to the Phase World Podcast, engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Hi, everybody. It is Wednesday again. I I am so excited to be welcoming this new guest to Phase World. His name is Mick Ebeling. Mick is an American film, television, and commercial executive producer, author, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. Mick has been honored by Advertising Age as one of the top 50 most creative people. Also in Wired Magazine Agent of Change, the recipient of 2014 Muhammad Ali Humanitarian of the Year Award. Mick founded the Not Impossible Labs, which is a company that is committed to create technology for the sake of humanity. I met Mick at the Future M Advertising Marketing event in Boston in November last year, 2015. So as you can imagine, Mick's story became a everyday story uh, to be told at home and at work. Mick was the keynote presenter for one of the three days I was at the event. His story silenced the entire auditorium. And by the way, this is a typical Boston, New England response. In case you're not from here or not familiar with the situation, this is how we react to a shock most of the time. So the strategy Mick has taught me is commit first and then figure it out. With that message, Mick told us his stories. So first is the iWriter. In April 2009, Mick flew five programmers and hackers to his LA home in his living room and created the iWriter, an open source DIY device which enables individuals with paralysis to communicate and create art using only the movements of their eyes. And the second project is called Project Daniel. In November 2013, Mick traveled to Sudan to 3D print the arms for children who lost their limbs in the war. Mick set up what is likely the very first 3D printed prosthetic lab in the middle of Anuba Mountains in Africa. And Mick debuted that project at CES 2014 in Vegas alongside Intel and many other companies. The project itself went on to win every single possible award you can imagine. So in this episode of Face World Podcast, you will hear many personal stories directly from Mick, sharing his experience with both projects and, and beyond. I was rather excited, or to be quite honest, I could barely contain myself right before the actual interview took place on Skype. Mick was in California, I think it was about 60 degrees over there, and I was in Boston, exactly 24 degrees that day. And earlier that day, I came down with this horrific cold, and my voice crackled a few times, you can probably hear during the recording. And there are times that my mind was so cloudy that I could barely string two words together from time to time. And I was disappointed with myself. But Mick led the way and helped me piece together an otherwise impossible interview. And Mick told me the reality of his very own everyday struggle. The reality is that there's low points every day, you know? And I am, I am 
just as I kind of admitted in the book that I, I cry in movies on airplanes, um, I, I'm scared every single day. I'm every single day. I'm like, am I doing the right thing? And did I, did, am I going about this the right way? Is this going to actually make a difference? Am I, am I spending too much time on this and not enough time on that? If you're afraid, you're in the right place because you're pushing yourself. When you experience that thing that you're afraid of is that you go into it. Like you don't avoid it. You go into it and you go into it, you know, head first and and sit with it and be afraid and feel what it feels like to be afraid. Don't deny it. As a digital producer for over 10 years, I had to ask Mick, also a producer by trade, what does he see as the superpower we as producers have? Why we've been successful is as a producer, you have to have a relentless commitment to completion and a short memory on failure. I love when Mick told me one of his childhood stories. We would go camping every two weeks and at the end of that camp trip, he would have us not just pick up our campsite, but pick up the campsites around. And my brother and I would complain and we would not pick up trash that wasn't ours. And my dad would come over and say, hey, there's some more trash over there. There's a cigarette butt and there's some a beer can and my, and my dad didn't drink or, or smoke. And uh, he would say, well, you know, if we all left, the campsites that we stayed in cleaner than when we found them, then the campsites would always be clean and we would never have a litter issue. I hope this slightly more elaborative intro is helpful. Please share your ideas, thoughts with us by responding via social media or the blog post or iTunes. And the handle again is FaceWorld, F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D. And I will see you at the end of the show. Please welcome Mick Ebling from Not Impossible. Hey Mick, so great to see you again. To see you as well. What's happening? I heard it's super nice over in California and it's now, I think, 24 degrees in Boston. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so I, I apologize in advance if I have to like blow my nose. <laughs> no worries. No um, worries. Um, I, if you don't, um, I know you've met a lot of people this past year or so. And uh, so I first uh, heard your story and met you in person, shook your hands after the Future M event in Boston. Okay, cool. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you again. And I must say that Thanks to your story, I am able to tell your story to, I think so far, probably dozens of people throughout the holiday and becomes a topic that, <laughs> and it, you should see, I, I, um, I met a, a group of uh, new team members earlier this morning. I start, of course, I have to brag about this interview and you should just see the looks on their faces and everybody, you know, just all of a sudden start paying attention and, yeah. <laughs> and it's That's awesome. Yeah, I am so I'm so psyched about this, and uh, thank you for for having me. And I bought your book, and I start reading it as part of my evening meditation. And I wow, yeah, that, that's awesome. And then to hear that, to hear that, because it's so much more than the TED talk and what I heard even during that one hour, maybe two hour keynote conversation. There's so many personal stories uh, that you talk about when you were, when you mentioned that you would watch a movie on the plane and cry. I was like, I do that 
all the time. <laughs> I get exceptionally emotional. So um, there's one thing I must tell you uh, that I thought your presentation in Boston was so phenomenal that I, the moment you stopped talking, I looked around, which was my mistake. I was looking for a standing ovation. And I realized and asked myself all this time between our conversation, realized, why did I have to look around? Why couldn't <laughs> I just stand up on my own? So That's awesome. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. Oh, how, did you how did you like the audience? Uh, what was that experience like for you? I know that It was a mellow audience. Usually the audiences are a little bit more participatory and, and kind of vibrant. It was a, it was a fairly uh, reserved audience. You know, I feel like maybe that's a New England thing. I know you're not from here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was so excited. I was like, wow, look at this. It's like a surfer, dude, super cool. I don't know what he's going to talk about, but um, but I was hoping that you notice the moment you're you're done with the speech and there's so many people lined up to for the autographs of the book. Uh, in particular, my company, Arnold, invited the people who went to Futurem and said, you have to come back and present to the company. And all of us turned in our homework and this woman, uh, Lauren, she basically presented in front of like a hundred people here at Arnold talking about your story. And so, so many more people heard about that. And she was the only oh. one who got picked. Oh, wow. Amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Ar- I'm, I'm, I love all, I mean, Pete Favazza is a close friend. I was just with him this week and there's a, there's a bunch of people. Um, we're actually going to do a project with him right now, which I'm really excited about. And um, we're, I'm trying to, there's, let me hang on. I'll tell you some of the other sure. the other Arnoldites that I'm um, Arnold. So Spring Clinton is she still there? Yes. I love Spring is my favorite. She's the most foul mouthed, amazing producer I've ever met. Billy Near, Billy Near, Dave Register, uh, Ken Ferris isn't there anymore. He was in Arnold, New York. Um, yeah, those are the main ones. Unbelievable. Yeah. I was just talking to Spring the uh, yesterday, and Dave, David Register just got promoted to EVP Creative. So nice. Well, please say hi to Dave. I'll um, actually here. I'll just text him while we're talking. But let's <laughs> let's let's definitely jump in. Well, we've got a lot of different things that we work on. I mean, the iWriter and Project Daniel are the most well known. Mm-hmm. Um, and for your listeners, Project Daniel was a, a project that I did in 2013, and the the initial kind of the initial inspiration around this was I had read an article about a young boy in Sudan who had lost both of his arms in the war, and um, what got me was when he woke up from his amputation, he realized that uh, his comment was, you know, if I could die, I would because I'm now going to be such a burden to my family. And to me, that was something that I just, I couldn't really fathom. I couldn't fathom a child having that kind of despair. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, I, I undertook and kind of committed. And one of the principles that we live by here is commit and figure it out, is that we decided to do something. So we, um, in the end, um, in exactly four days, or I'm sorry, four months from the day that I read that first article, I was in Sudan. I ended up putting an amazing team together of people to help come up with a great solution. We printed uh, an arm for this young boy named Daniel and Daniel fed himself for the first time in two years Mm -hmm. with an arm that we made in Sudan. 
And that to me was just the, the success of that project was not just because he fed himself for the first time was a, which was a numerical unto itself. It was the fact that we left all the materials there in the team um, that we trained in Sudan in this war-torn region of the Nuba Mountains, they were able to continue making arms after we left. And that was the most exciting part. Wow. So that, you know, that's, that project for me ended up being an incredibly, incredible example because one of the ways that we end up sustaining the work that we do is by working with brands and working with, um, you know, Fortune 100 companies and telling these incredibly powerful stories around the the premise that we live by, which is technology for the sake of humanity. And we go out and we'll make this technology, engineer this technology, do whatever we can to make something, and then tell the story around it. And the Project Daniel story, we ended up having underwritten by uh, Intel, and it went on to win literally every single advertising award under the sun, from all the way from, you know, the one show, best of show, and the can line, you know, we won the titanium in can, to innovation awards and humanitarian awards and it was just a it was just an incredibly uh, well received and popular project so those are you know the iWriter and project daniel those are the two that i kind of cite most often just because i think they have the most you know tangible relevancy to the brands or the companies that we're speaking with um you know at this point we're working on projects around water we're working around projects that uh, deal with music uh sites. There's a whole wide swath of different things that we work on. Mm -hmm. One of the things you mentioned about the 3D uh, printing arm project, which I I loved, was the fact that you focus on the functionality, the usability of it, instead of uh, thinking of how absolutely beautiful and gorgeous it needs to be, and yet not usable. And I think you used the metaphor of if Steve Jobs or Apple were to see it, uh, at the beginning, you said they might not be their favorite product, but yet this saved, in my opinion, saved somebody's lives. And then it's still producing after the fact, after that you have um, left Africa. What's your personal take on the production process? Was there, you know, what was your role in that and to making sure that you can conquer, you know, every level of difficulties and making sure that it, this ends up being produced? Well, you know, you have to take all the steps to make sure that you pave the way for success. You can't just, you know, hold your breath and cross your fingers and hope that it all works out. So you take you take precautions and and you put in take you know very necessary steps to make sure that everything is set up. But then there's also you can also you know analysis paralysis. You can go to the point where you never actually depart or leave. Or, or actually do it because you're trying to sort everything out. So there's at a certain point you have to kind of trust in your experience and trust in your team, and then on you off you go. Is it possible to share some of the stories sort of after Daniel Project? Um, who are some of the other kids or people who are able to benefit from this technology and what you've left with them? You know, in Africa and the production is still in progress. I believe Intel is involved as well. So what's the level of impact today after the project was initially launched in 2013? I mean, the impact today, and this is kind of what we what we strive to accomplish in all of our projects is to light the fuse and to set the, set the, set the stage and, and kind of introduce this concept of 
people being able to, to do these types of things. So, you know, the arm itself was near obsolete probably within, you know, six to 10 months because other arms had come out, other prosthetics had come out. Um, there was a lot of civil unrest there as well, which kind of derailed our, our, our plans for expansion there and, and continued work. But our goal is, um, we will, we will kind of light these fuses and set these projects going. And then we use that as, as inspiration and motivation for other people in our community in kind of the non-impossible community or people who are familiar with us or just the general public to then go and try to innovate and iterate on what we've created. So many times what we'll do is we'll, you know, we'll post open source kind of what is, um, uh, kind of how we went about something. But even if someone just knows the story, even if someone just knows what we did, but they don't know the specifics, we would hope that that would be the thing that would inspire them to, you know, you talked about it earlier, the, the thing that we live by here, which is help one help many, is that we would want them to kind of hear this story and understand the story and say, you know, I can go do something just like that, or I can do something different. But the process that actually works is actually saying yes and going forward with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a huge fan of Seth Godin and and I somehow see there's a lot of overlap to what you're doing, your actions in relations to his teaching, which is keep showing up for your work. And like you said, you know, commit and then figure it out. But I think the trick is to um, really believe in the process and not every day is going to be glorified. You know, not every day is going to be a TED talk, a future M conference and, and people celebrating your work. So, I wonder what are some of the potential, you know, struggles or did you have a low point at any point during the not impossible and how did you conquer that? The reality is that there's low points every day, (laughs) you know, and I am, I am just as I kind of admitted in the book that I, I cry in movies on airplanes. Um, I, I'm scared every single day. I'm every single day. I'm like, am I doing the right thing? And did I, did, am I going about this the right way? Is this going to actually make a difference? Am I, am I spending too much time on this and not enough time on that? You know, there's a, there's a tremendous, uh, amount of, yeah. I mean, I guess fear would be the most human and most, I guess, specific way to describe it. It's not like, Oh, it's not, that's not paralyzing, but there's always a lot of concern there. So it, I think to deny that, I think you, if you're, if you're, if you're cautious and not cautious, but if you're, if you're afraid, mm-hmm. you're in the right place because you're pushing yourself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to create that, to create that tension. I, yeah. uh, I, even, you know, after 51 episodes, like I feel like whenever I push that publish button for a new episode, uh, I, I sense that fear right away of how this is going to perform, you know, and I always feel I choose my guests very carefully, and I feel they always outperform than my expectation. And but there's always the fear in me somehow to say, "Look at these people; all of them are way more accomplished than I am." You know, am I doing them justice to really properly, you know, share their stories and and have them have that voice and have their sort of experience properly shared? So it's so refreshing to hear from you that this is a very common feeling and emotions that all of us experience. So instead of taking a step back, you often take a step forward and just face the fear and address it. 
and be honest with that. So, you know, I think, um, and I write a little bit about this in the book. It's about when you, when you experience that thing that you're afraid of Mm -hmm. is that you go into it. Like you don't avoid it. You go into it and you go into it, you know, head first and, and sit with it and be afraid and feel what it feels like to be afraid. Don't deny it. Don't, don't stray away from it. Like go sit next to it, have a beer with it and then, and then get up, you know, get up and move on, kick it in the ass and move on. Like you, there's no reason why you need to try to quell the, or, you know, or squash the feeling of fear. That's a, that's a real true motivation. And, um, I think it's just a matter of con- <clears throat> containing it and understanding what to do with it. Yeah. I am internalizing a lot of this information. And for, for some reason, you know, when I interview Krista Tibbet and she said, um, there's so many dimensions to our voices. And when I first heard you and what you have shared with me so far, I just feel like there's you're such a great storyteller. And there is that just dimensions to your voice makes your stories uh, very relatable and very relevant to things, a lot of things we're going through. Um, and really helps me with sort of the thinking process and and to sit with it and, and listen to it again. And by the way, I listened to your podcast with James Altucher twice. And I realized the second time I was listening to it, I was able to absorb on that and somehow identify the information I didn't hear for the first time. It's like watching a, a really good movie several times. Mm, cool. Yeah. And then just kind of take that time to listen to someone speak instead of, you know, I feel like part of your process, you talk about the iterations of your process and you talk about when the iWriter, and I'm sure that wasn't the only project where things you did at the beginning did not work and you have to try it again and again. And then there are these entrepreneurs, I believe it was from Korea and complimenting you at first and realizing like, you know, we might have a better software and let's collaborate on this. So I'm kind of intrigued by your background as a producer and how much of that knowledge uh have translated to what you're do what you're doing day in day in and day out could you share some of that with me as uh, also as a producer uh in terms of the trials and tribulations of every day yeah yeah the skills as a producer you know i think as a producer i don't even think it's a long conversation i think it's as why we've been successful as as a producer you have to have a relentless um, a relentless commitment to completion and a short memory mm-hmm. on failure. So you have to just know that it's going to get done. You don't have a choice for it not to get done. And then as you continue to butt up against obstacles or problems or issues, you just forget about it and hurdle it and go on to the next one. So that that's really the skill set that I think that it takes to be uh, a successful producer and a successful, not impossible, what it takes to be successful here. Founding not impossible as a company, you certainly have gone through um, a lot of struggles and, and questions. What are were there any, you know, setbacks or like significant challenges that you had to you had to solve? Um, you know, specifically in terms of launching not impossible, this is a business model that we don't really have anything to point to to right. compare. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's a there's like kind of little bits of ingredients. Um, there's like, 
there's a little bit of production company, there's a little bit of, of advertising, there's a little bit of strategy, there's a little bit of you know innovation and invention. There's a lot of different things like that, but no one that we can tell have combined those into one one pot, right? One offering. And so we operate as a tech company that is out, you know, creating these life-changing, you know, world-changing inventions and approaches on, you know, technology for the sake of humanity. Um, but then there's also a very pragmatic part of what we do in terms of the storytelling. And so I think that that kind of mixture of how we go about it and the different various parts of this have been what has made us successful, I think, and what has really made our, given us our reputation of being able to, to do this the way that we do it. But it's also, you know, in that it, there's a business model that is able to abide by, oh, you're an ad agency, this is how much you charge. Oh, you're a production company, this is how much you charge. Mm-hmm. You know, but then when you start to mishmash those and take the different aspects of those that you do and don't do, um, it's, you're braving a new path in terms of a model. And that, I think, has been, has been the most challenging, the most scary, and the most exciting all at the same time. You phrased my question so much better. I, this is your answer is exactly what I was going to get at. There's no manual in doing something called not impossible just by, I mean, the name of the company. You're doing basically everything that was not done before. Um, and to to approach it with your unique lens, it's it, just hearing you talking about the process. It's very interesting to me. Cool. Um, what are some of the questions and as you've you know your company and yourself getting exposed to a lot of media channels and and being quoted um, interviewed what are some of the questions you wish people ask you but didn't well, I think it's some of the questions that you've just asked which is what are you scared about mm. you know that's we're not trying to be superhuman here by any means we're trying to actually be very much uh, very approachable and 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 real about our work. And I think that sometimes people will confuse the work that we do with having these superhuman powers. Mm-hmm. And um, we don't want that because that's actually does a disservice to what our mission is, which is to, you know, and really remind people that they have the ability to, to go and do these things as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, as far as the question goes, that the human component of what you've asked, you know, what are we afraid of? What are our challenges? These, these are the things that typically don't get asked. And so I'm, I'm glad you did. Have you always been this way? Because I had a feeling when I first met you, you know, we, we always, we always judge people. And the way I look at you, I assume you're from California, you're a surfer, and I was right about both of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I just sense this freestyle. And you have so much love, not just for yourself or your family, but out there for the world. And you know, I think it's how I, this is just a manifestation of how I perceive the world. Mm-hmm. And then what we do to address it. So I see the world as an incredibly beautiful, magnanimous, um, inspiring, lush place. And I see that the problems that exist, I don't feel that those problems are so gargantuan that they cannot be solved. Like I, I don't believe in littering. I don't believe in, you know, a, a lot of things. But I also don't get stressed about global warming and, uh, and littering and, and, and trash and things like that, because I know that mother earth is going to just 
chew it all up and spit it all out again at a particular point. Now, we as humans might not be around to experience that. We might mess it up for ourselves. But I always laugh that, that, that we think that uh, we're messing up the earth. The earth, is, the earth is too big to be messed up. We're <laughs> messing up the little tiny aspect of the earth that we inhabit and so that it's something that we should be more selfishly concerned than we are about, you know, trying to be um, so, I guess, worried about the fact that the Earth's never going to be the same. It's like, yeah, we've, the Earth survived dinosaurs and ice ages and a couple other things. I think if the humans, the frail humans are the ones to be concerned. I actually want to find out, you know, for an entrepreneur like yourself, doing these amazing projects to summarize the two stories I keep sharing are the iWriter but that that project really resonated with me uh, very well. And then following that, the fact that you, uh, I believe you went to Africa to deliver the 3D arm for the... No, not deliver it, make it. To make you, it. You actually made it out there. Wow. What did your, one thing you didn't talk about too much is like, how did your family respond to that? You have three boys and you're going out there on a limb by yourself uh, you know, they, they support me and what I do when they know who I am. So there's not a lot of, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not any different than I am all the time. So they're not necessarily surprised. Obviously my wife was worried and concerned, but, uh, you know, she's, she's incredibly supportive of, of what we do at Nana Possible. Because I, I grew up in Beijing and I think about the way my parents raised me, which was considered pretty westernized. But compared to most other parents, you know, the tiger moms and dads, there's so many parents still today trying to live through their kids, you know, to help them fulfill that ambition. But while you were speaking, and it made me think about like, well, I want to be this kind of parent who is just so happy and fulfilled, um, you know, with your own ambitions. And I have a feeling that your kids must be really, really proud of you. Could you tell me about like, what is, what is parenting like for you given not impossible and, and all these projects? What have you learned as a parent and how, how has that impacted your kids? Um, my favorite thing right now is that my kids will say, um, Oh, I always ask them how their day at school went or what's going on. They said, well, I broke some rules today. And I'll say, what do you mean? And they said, well, you never follow rules. So, you know, someone wanted us to do something and I decided I wasn't going to do that. So I love that they're independent thinkers and that they don't feel that they need to subscribe by rules. Mm -hmm. And I said, listen, you know, just make sure you understand some rules are there for your safety and some rules are there because someone thought that they should be there and you need to be able to distinguish between the two. Um, but I'm really proud of them that they, um, they, they all work very hard. They understand the concept of that the luckiest people in the world also happen to be the hardest working people in the world. And they're willing to work towards their goals and they're willing to not necessarily subscribe to convention. I mean, that's the beautiful thing when you talk to kids. Convention is, a, is an adult concept. It's not a concept that they understand or that they really, there's no preconceived notion or, or definition of what of, of what um, kind of convention might mean. So it's fun to celebrate with them. Of, Listen, you can invent this however you want, and you can pursue whatever we, whatever dream, whatever goal, whatever it might be. You can pursue it however you want. And and um, my nine year old and five year old just decided that they wanted to get a hamster, and we said, "Great, buy it yourself." 
And they said, <laughs> okay. And they went outside and it was a super, super cold day and they sold lemonade outside. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, like, no one's going to buy lemonade on a cold day. And they came back in later that day and they made 20 bucks, you know? And See. so they, so I love that they have that kind of um, just fortitude and drive to, if they want something, they just go do it. Wow. I also love the fact that you didn't just hand them the money. And oh, no, no way. That's, I think that's the worst thing you can do as a parent, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. It seems like they're committed, then they figure it out. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's something they truly want. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Uh, I want to hear a little more about your childhood stories, because I started to get a glimpse of that through your book. And it sounds like you're, you're coming from a very, like an incredible family, and parents are always supportive of others. Um, where did you grow up? What was it like for you? Uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about it in the book, and I think that those stories are probably the most representative of, of what I consider to be the most influential aspects of my childhood. I grew up and I was born in Los Angeles and grew up in Arizona, and I grew up to parents who were incredibly philanthropic and, and were incredibly giving. We were we would go to church every weekend. There was a regularity in a, in a, in a kind of a a pace to our life. I think we would go to church every weekend. My parents volunteered and either, either volunteered or started charities the whole time I can remember. We would always go to the same place on vacation. We'd go camping. So there's, there was like a, a really wonderful, I think, nurturing and comfortable consistency to, to my life. And I think it was, you know, a lot of the lessons that I learned, I learned from those kind of subtle moments. And I, I talk about it a little bit in the book of one of them is the lesson that I learned from, from my father, which is, you know, we would go camping every two weeks, and at the end of that camp trip, he would have us not just pick up our campsite, mm-hmm. but pick up the campsites around. And my brother and I would complain, and we would not pick up trash that wasn't ours. And my dad would come over and say, hey, there's some more trash over there. There's a cigarette butt, and there's some a beer can, and my, and my dad didn't drink or, or smoke. And uh, he would say, well, you know, if we all left the campsites that we stayed in cleaner than when we found them, then the campsites would always be clean and we would never have a litter issue. And of course, as a, you know, as a teenager, you'd roll your eyes and be like, Oh dad. (laughs) But now I look back at that and that, I mean, that the plays into my life in the most mundane and and kind of small instances, a very small example. And it it happens in the big kind of not impossible initiative uh, way of working. One of my, takeaways from your speech was, you know, I was sitting there thinking, well, this is incredible. When can I ever do that? And then I am not sure if you remember one of the the kind of homework that you left with us is help someone today or Mm -hmm. in the next week, next two weeks. And I realized that's something that anyone could do. And that was also, I like when James Altucher suggested that use a hashtag or, you know, help someone do something of meaning today. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to do something uh, within my control. That's something I'm not already doing. So I um, I took your advice at the end of the holiday. I went up to the Arnold's re- receptionist. She has been here for probably more than 20 years. And, and she is someone we, we all admire very much, but oftentimes people walk right by her, only go to her when they need help. Mm-hmm. So, so I prepared a gift for her. And she just, she went around the desk, gave me a huge hug that I just, I've never experienced something like that. And then probably was my favorite moment in all my two years at Arnold. And we ended up going out to lunch and getting coffee. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I, 
I said she told me so much about her life and how she supports her sister. Wow. Yeah, she dedicated her life. She's doing what she does into her 60s to support her family and her sister. Amazing. And uh, I, I realized, you know, anybody could do this. This does not require extensive technology or a team of people. Um, so thank you for that, for triggering. I love that. Yeah, no, it was really human. I, I love it. It's fantastic. So for people to learn more, you know, for people who have never been exposed uh, to the Not Impossible projects, what is a good way to kind of uh, not necessarily get in touch with you, but kind of share their share their feedback or learn more about uh, what you're doing, what you're up to? Um, the best way is to go to notimpossible.com. You can see some of the things that we have worked on, some of our historicals. Um, you to read the book. You know, the book I think is a great example. It's a much more in-depth version of the things that we're that we do. Uh, go to Non-Impossible Now, which is our blog where we're celebrating the stories of people doing the non-impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, those are kind of the three major touch points that I would say to hit. And then just to make sure to like us and follow us on our social media channels so that you can see what we're up to kind of real time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mick. I I have so much respect for what you're doing and uh You've really impacted my life personally, and I know so many people I know at Arnold, and you know, it's our, you know, the the group's reaction at Future M was not an accurate, I guess, outcome of what you might imagine. That this is truly something that that touched our lives and our hearts in a very, very deep way. I'm very, I'm very uh, honored that you would say that. So thank you very much. Yeah, my life is, I feel like my life is, and my ambition has kind of divided into two parts is like before learning about you and your stories and, and after I started to really look at my personal life differently and kind of challenge myself to see um, where I can probe and kind of extend myself to make this world a better place, even if just meaning starting with small things like I did. That's incredibly, I'm, I'm honored and blushing. So thank you. Hopefully, I will get to meet you uh, in in person one day. I don't know when you're going. Uh, any upcoming events that you might be coming to or staying in California for? Uh, uh, you know, you I speak. Um, I, I speak all over the world, so I'm always kind of crisscrossing around the globe. But I get I get out east. I, I'm out west. I'm in, I'm over in Europe a bunch. So it's literally all over the place. So uh, just give us a shout when you're heading west, and love to have you come by and say hi. That- that would be great. Is there an event calendar uh, or with dates I can take a look at? Is that on the website? Uh, there isn't. That isn't. That's an interesting. That's an interesting suggestion. So, mm. I look forward to um, just get involved in in so many things. I'm even, you know, reading about not impossible to see if there's anything I can you know help you out with. Um, that would be amazing. Well, we always have projects and we're always looking for volunteer project managers and producers to work on things. So if that's something that you want to pursue, you know, by all means, let us know because we are, we are understaffed and, and um, incredibly passionate about what we're doing. So we always are looking for help. Yeah, please, please let me know. Should I get in touch with Leslie? Or? Yeah, get in touch with Leslie and ask her, you know, which projects that we need help on. And she can definitely maybe float a couple by you and see what you'd like to do. Awesome. Wow, this is incredible, Mick. I, I'm so I'm so grateful. Hi guys, thanks so much again for spending this past half an hour with us. 
and uh, thank you for choosing us and for letting us have your attention. So I do want to call out notimpossible.com is a great resource for you to learn more about the labs and I especially like the blog section where you can learn so many new projects and things Mick and his team are involved in and establishing and there are great volunteer uh, opportunities you can find out more um, directly by contacting them and read the book the book is fantastic it's also called not impossible I have a copy of it where Mick shares a lot more personal stories and the ups and downs and uh, if you enjoy this message, I hope you go out there and help one person that doesn't have to be big. I hope you then share these stories with others, um, including this podcast, and encourage them, everybody around you, do the same. And I, I, we are indebted to Mick's effort and, and really everybody on his team. And best of luck, and um, I hope you tune in again in two weeks. See you soon. To listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F E I S W O R L D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at Face World. Until next time, thanks for listening.